1: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: You, uh, If you are a frequent television viewer, I do not count myself amongst those numbers, but for those of you that are, you might have been watching recently the uh, runaway smash hit early on uh, TV series called Under the Banner of Heaven. And uh, it, it's kind of a... Religious murder mystery? Is there such a thing as that? Um, And I I won't take time here at the top of the conversation to go into uh, too too much detail uh, because I want to get into our visit with our next guest who is, in fact, a former member of the Mormon Church. She has written a number of best-selling books. In fact, she has more than 30 best-sellers to her credit. She also has a Ph.D. in biblical studies. joins us now to discuss... a a book that is now retitled and re-released called Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. we're pleased to have join us once again, Dr. Latane Scott. Dr. Scott, thanks so much for carving some time out of your schedule to be with us. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you. Tell me first a a bit sort of from your your perspective, why the fascination with this? I mean, I I, I suppose in the sense, I mean, obviously, uh, Americans like a a lot of uh, Westerners uh, love to get pulled into murder mysteries and uh, whodunit type stories and what have you. We have for, you know, going back to uh, the days of her Sherlock Holmes. This particular TV series, though, has a bit of a twist in that it is kind of against the setting of Mormonism. Um, all of the the primary protagonists in the the story are uh, are Mormon or or have uh, some involvement with the Mormon Church. Why do you think that's attracting so much attention?
3: Well, under the banner of Heaven was based on a best selling book by John Krakauer. And he based his uh, narrative nonfiction on an incident that actually happened in the 1970s in Utah, where an offshoot of the Mormon church, some, I guess we would call them Mormon extremists, had a woman that that kind of married into their clan, and it really was a family clan, and she didn't really toe the line on some things like having multiple wives um, and other things, and they ended up murdering her, and this is, I mean, this is a a documented case uh, that actually happened and Krakauer's book detailed that. But when Hulu made a series out of it, they put in a, a couple of characters that weren't from real life, but who were, one of them was a faithful Mormon. And I think the thing that made the big difference, Craig, with with the listeners and the watchers of this, this uh, Hulu series was that they saw what happens To a faithful, you know, true blue Mormon, when he begins to see that his past, his, um, all of the things that he held most dear about Mormonism actually don't have reality and fact. In Mm -hmm. other words, um, most of the history of the Mormon church has been just made up or plastered over or prettied up, but it's actually quite a bloody. Uh, background.
2: Or at times, as, as we've seen in uh, the history of probably the least, certainly the last 100 plus something years, and that is when certain things come out that tend to be very inconvenient, then the history of the church gets rewritten and washed over, and and uh, the, the denial factory uh, kicks into high gear. Beyond, obviously, some aspects, and I think, you know, for, for fairness and clarity's sake for our listeners, there are different branches of Mormonism. They're sort of the more traditional LDS, Utah, Mother Church brand of Mormonism and then we have a lot of offshoots I'm thinking of for example the the Warren Jeffs um, uh, mm-hmm. offshoot that, that really gets into the notion of multiple wives to a very significant degree and a very very closed type of society where on average and correct me at any point Dr. Scott if I'm incorrect here most LDS church Mormons well perhaps a lot of their social life might 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 be amongst other Mormons and within their own family. They they certainly don't eschew interaction with non-Mormons, and and in fact, oftentimes are are very, very active in the community around them.
3: Well, it's kind of a peculiar situation. When I was a a very faithful Mormon at Brigham Young University. Um, at that time, Brigham Young University was, was for members of the main group that you just mentioned. And, and, and everything you said was accurate, by the way. Um, but also at BYU when I was there were several people from polygamist compounds in Mexico and in Arizona. Young people that had been sent by their families to Brigham Young University because it was such a high quality of education. So this wasn't something really openly talked about, but you know I knew that uh, once you started talking to people about their background and they weren't usually weren't very open about it, but you could finally figure out if they were from Mexico and they were from a particular community down there. They were from a polygamous branch of the Mormon Church. And I think at last count, Craig, um, maybe 50 or 60 distinct movements have come out of the mainstream the Church.
4: Mm
2: groups. Now, aside certainly from the polygamy, which of course tends to still, even in this day and age, when uh, when almost seemingly anything goes, it still tends to raise eyebrows. And yet I think there is um, a pretty significant group uh, just amongst the population that probably still positively views, the, or still views the church in a, in a positive fashion in the sense that, as I mentioned, the, the, the people of the church tend to be very involved in, in civic life and, and community life and uh, you know well known for certainly clean living. You know if you if you say, well my neighbor, you know how he is, he doesn't smoke, drink, or go with girls that do <laughs> they'll probably say, oh yeah, he's a Mormon. You know, there's that there's that sense of 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 a high level of discipline and healthy, clean living lifestyle. And yet Below the surface of sort of the presentation that all is well, the families get along, divorce never happens, it's all, uh, you know, um, coming, everything's coming up roses, there is a side of Mormonism. And again, now to be distinct, I'm not talking here about the, 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 the cult end of the polygamy side of the extreme end of LDS, but rather sort of within the mainstream church, that there's still a side of Mormonism that is not really what it's cracked up to be.
3: You know, there's an enormous, inordinately large percentage or large uh, factor of Mormon women who are on antidepressants and are, and or consider suicide because of the expectations that are put on them to live that kind of lifestyle and of course if you believe as I did that when I got married that I was going to have as many children as my body could reasonably dare because there were spirits in heaven waiting to inhabit bodies and they needed Mormon bodies and so I was willing to do that. I didn't believe I was going to practice polygamy on earth but I did believe I would practice it in heaven when I became a goddess, and my husband's other wives were goddesses, and he was a god, and we would be populating planets. Well, you can imagine that 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 kind of expectation for eternity, coupled with the fact that that you really do want to put the best foot face forward uh, for your faith. You want your children to be, you know, dress nice, and you, uh, you want to be the the hostess with the mostess, and cook and clean and, you know, participate in church work. And it, it's really overwhelming for women. I've spoken to many women who um, just suffered so silently not because the church was repressing them, but because of the expectations that the church and they put on them to to um, model future Godhood. And it's it's quite a burden to to carry. it would seem to me, I mean, you're you're
2: describing a model that is very, in other terms, very works based and as we know from a biblical perspective a a works based faith it never never turns out well uh, you know our 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 works are a result of our uh, our salvation um, or a product of our salvation and not the other way around and so i would imagine it must be pretty exhausting trying to live up to that standard and then also finding yourself in a religion that is um, pretty close-minded and by that i mean and i even say it on this program hey if i say something on the air that you think sounds like a lot of hooey don't take my word for it go and check it out go talk to your pastor dive into the word and see if it doesn't agree and if the word doesn't agree and proves me wrong then please call me and tell me i'm an idiot and a liar that kind of questioning or sort of, uh, shall we say, uh, doubting Thomas trying of one's own faith, that's not encouraged within Mormonism as all, at all, is it?
3: Well, not only that, Craig. What you're aiming at and what I'm aiming at is to help our Christian brothers and sisters have compassion for these people that are overwhelmed with having to earn their salvation. or In in Mormon. Terminology to earn their exaltation because they believe salvation is guaranteed to everybody if you're born on earth. But exaltation means where you end up in heaven and you have to earn that. You're absolutely right. And so you and I both want um, uh, your listeners to come away with the impression that these people that seem so formidable with this great, you know, this, uh, and, and they're trying their hardest to do their best but there's, there many of them are suffering because this is quite a burden that their, their religious faith puts on them. And, um, and you mentioned that they're it being exclusive. I don't think you use that word. Um, from the point of view of a Mormon, I was very proud of that. I, I This uh, this close-knit group was something I was proud of. And to be honest with you, Craig, I've been a member of the same congregation for 50 years now. Once I left Mormonism, same Christian con- congregation of people. And I love that we stick together, too. So, you know, what we see is a disadvantage in, in others. We need to just make sure as if we're going to turn the searchlight of criticism on a group that we have a um that when it shines back on us we're not doing the same thing um that's why i think people often ask is mormonism a cult and um i just wanted to ask you Craig, what, what do you think about that
2: well, you know, as as I understand a cult, and there, there's a couple of degrees to which I, I would define it. First and foremost, when it comes down to the the most fundamental rudimentary rudimentary definition of what salvation is, uh, I I would suggest. Yes, because I do not see within mormonism the the singular belief that the only way by which man may be may be forgiven of, forgiven of sin and regenerated and and relationship with God mm-hmm. restored is singularly and only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and yet I understand Amen. that there's so much of Mormonism that is works based which then I think would, would in a sense qualify it as being a bloodless cult, meaning that it does not singularly turn on Christ's work on the cross. And then when you add things like, yeah, the, the, the sense of being, being a tight-knit community is not always a bad thing, Provided that you know it, it doesn't become an echo chamber, and what I love about mm-hmm. evangelical Christianity is not only are questions encouraged, I think that it that it mm-hmm. that it really ought to be part of what we do. Hath God said? Let's check out and see what the Word has to say. Asking questions seems to be something that, at least from my understanding, is not always encouraged within the Mormon church. I mean, I would suspect if you went to a- any of the 12 elders and said, OK, about these uh, about these plates of Moroni, um, yeah. and uh, so they, came, they were discovered, they were translated, but you don't have them in the church library because God took them back up to heaven. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, the one thing that's beautiful about Christianity is that we can demonstrate not only from the eye witness accounts that we see in the harmony of the Gospels and throughout Scripture, but there's also architecture and history that demonstrates that many of the things that we see and hear and read about within God's Word is, in fact, Verifiable by extra-biblical sources, and that's not necessarily the case within Mormonism. So from those two points, I would say, yeah, I would probably put, although maybe not in the same category as a, a cult, quote-unquote, like a Jonestown, Jim Jones-style cult, I would still have to say, and I would, I would even say this to a, a, a Mormon friend, that I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of Mormonism does appear to be a cult.
3: You know, I agree completely with you, and I don't know whether, when we put this together, there are four characteristics of a pseudo-Christian cult. In other words, a cult that uses the terminology of Christianity, but um, is a, a cult. And one is that it deifies man or mankind, and we talked about that when I told you that I believed I was going to become a goddess and my husband was going to become a god. We've already talked about, and you brought up very aptly, the different view of salvation, a workspace salvation. When you mentioned the the golden plates, what did the Book of Mormon intend to do and intended to make up for the lacks in the Bible? So the third characteristic of a cult is that it ostracizes Scripture or replaces it or diminishes it. The only thing we didn't talk about that's the fourth characteristic of God, and I think this is remarkable, we did this, you and I, not just discussing this ahead of time, is we did not talk about how a God, the Father in um, in Mormon theology, was a former man who lived on a different planet than this and became a God. Yeah. So the four characteristics of a cult, we, we actually just about talk you about it we've just been talking about what we know about Mormonism, we've already identified three of the four characteristics of a cult.
2: And you know, I find it fascinating because when we talk about man's sin nature, I mean, certainly the notion of wanting to, to um, uh, transplant or supersede God's authority, I mean, that was hinted mm-hmm. at even within uh, the Garden of Eden when the serpent came and said, well, mm-hmm. hath God said? And, and the notion of man wanting to take on uh, godlike characteristics, I have to tell you, uh, as a believer of many years now, I find even the notion exhausting. I would have no God says, I am the only Lord thy God, and you will have no other gods before me. And I don't even want to think about the notion of being competitive, uh, let alone (laughs) being on the same par. I am quite content with God being God. And and I think that notion of of becoming a deity or having, I mean, I I may have traits in terms of, of being created in the image and likeness of God, but I am not. God, and when we start to do that, we find ourselves, quite frankly, taking on the characteristics of another very prominent character in Scripture, and that is Satan himself, who wished Mm -hmm. to be God. That's right. And therefore, you look at that from a purely scriptural standpoint and say, you know, if Mormons insist that, you know, we, we all believe in the same God, it's just a little bit of a different approach. We've got a little bit more current revelation, you know, that it didn't end with the, the final pages being written of the the uh, the New Testament somewhere in the Middle East, uh, 2,000 or 1,500 years ago, whatever the date might be. But instead, it was just, you know, less than 150, 200 years old written here just right over here. Here in Utah, boy, you got to look at that and say, there seems to be something that's not quite computing. With me today is Dr. Latane Scott. She has a newly released and and retitled a book called Under the Banner of the Mormon Cold. And she draws from her own life experiences to help readers understand the current day fascination with Mormonism, particularly as it's capturing some attention um, with the current television series Under the Banner of Heaven, as well as helping us understand not only what Mormon teaches, how it differs from traditional, mainline, fundamental, five pillars of the faith style Christianity, and then ultimately, and perhaps most importantly, how we can reach our Mormon friends for Christ. We take a time out. We'll come back with more as Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: I'm getting the sense that we should have booked an hour with our guest in this segment of the program because there's so much to unpack here. But that'll maybe give you a good reason to go out and order a copy of her newly released and retitled book, "Under the Banner of the Mormon Code," where she draws from her own life experiences and offers insights to readers in terms of not just having a better understanding of some of the history of Mormonism, what it teaches, how it differs from mainline evangelical Christianity, but then and of course most importantly uh, how we're able to share our faith and encouragement with our Mormon friends, and and toward that end, let, let's talk about that. We've kind of talked about some of the the challenges that that Mormons face in terms of you know the the the, the sort of the requirement of, of lifestyle and good works for um, salvation, and and I would suspect then to some degree, uh, Mormons at some point in their their life experience must get a little bit tired and feel. Trem- Tremendously. Unfulfilled that they're working so hard. And granted, they've got something to look forward to. But, you know, one of the joys, uh, Dr. Scott, for me is that, yes, I've got heaven to look forward to. But I also get lots of benefits down here. And the relationship with God and the satisfaction of being able to, to have that communion with him is, is absolutely uh, without, without equal. And, and yet I would imagine for a Mormon, they don't share that experience. And I wonder if that's a is that potentially a starting point? when you wish to share your faith with a Mormon.
3: You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because when people ask me, when Mormon missionaries come to their door, what should they do? You know, what should they know? Is there a magic bullet scripture you can quote to them and they'll go away scratching their heads and, you know, starting to wonder? And it's really much simpler than that, Craig. I tell people that when someone comes to your door and tells you that they uh, have the Mormon gospel, um, I suggest that you not invite them in unless you're really, really prepared. And I believe your home is a sacred place not to bring someone in error into. But here's what I tell people to do. You can open the door and say, you know... Uh, I appreciate your coming, but you know what? I am so satisfied in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have such a happy relationship with my uh, church family. And even though I have circumstances in my life that are hard, I have eternal joy and eternal hope, and I'm content with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you why that would be so effective. When I was a Mormon, I believed that the Christians were secretly unhappy and they needed Mormonism to be happy. And that they were all, and of course that was always solidified when people slammed the doors in the faces of Mormon missionaries, you know. here are these sour-faced people that, you know, say, I don't want to hear you, and they shut the door. If I think if I had, when I was a Mormon, heard Christians saying, my life with, with the Lord Jesus Christ is so satisfying that I don't need what you're offering me. I'll tell you what, these 18, 19-year-old boys that are homesick, they're away from their homes, they're stuck with each other, you know day and night, literally, if they heard that from, let's say, every other door that they knocked on in a neighborhood of a Christian giving them a big smile and saying, you know what? I I just don't need that. I I have so much joy in in my life, so much satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not anything you could give me that I don't already have. Those young men would go back and start thinking what they know that we don't know. Mm.
2: Let me ask you this. From from a Mormon perspective, um, when, when I think of God, certainly I, I acknowledge and recognize that he is holy and righteous and that uh, he's a jealous God he wants no other gods before him that he expects me to live up to a certain standard the same token that same god recognizes that in my fallen sin nature we've proven to be wholly incapable of that and therefore the reason why he sent his son to pay the price on my behalf but i i don't see god as someone that is standing in heaven with a bat ready to bash me over the head at the first wrong move rather i see a god that yes is holy and righteous but is also loving, long-suffering, tender, compassionate, caring, always present, um, always responding, even though the answer sometimes to prayer may be no, but yet God is is engaging and is there. Is that kind of perspective shared by Mormons, or is he the, the big boo- boogeyman up in the sky ready to bop you over the head?
3: Honestly, I never had that impression, um, Craig. In fact, kind of to the opposite. Since I believed that God the Father was a former man who had lived on another planet and that his wife or wives, Heavenly Mother, had gone through the same kind of process I had gone through in an earthly life, I believed that they would be more sympathetic to my struggles because they had been through them themselves. Mm. And of course that completely hijacks and shanghives the role of Jesus Christ of as someone who came to earth to share in our, in our, in our uh, sufferings. And you know, he suffered in all points just as we are. And if, if you don't mind me inserting this right now, because the, those four characteristics I told you uh, about a cult are so significant in evaluating any group like Mormonism, I would love to bless your listeners with a free ebook on the characteristics of a cult. All they have to do is go to com forward slash cults, and I'll send them a free ebook. That gives the characteristics of, of a cult and you can take those and look at any group around you to see if they uh, if they follow these four characteristics and to come back to what you're saying this view of a formerly human God the father diminishes him see the comfort I have now Craig in the true and living God of the of the, uh, of the Uh, of the Bible, is that he doesn't ever change. Mormons believe God is eternally progressing, that that he's going to be wiser tomorrow than he was today. And the problem with that, of course, is that he's not as wise as he will. uh, He wasn't as wise yesterday as he is today. Mm. That once you realize that, it, it makes him a lesser God because he's just one of us. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, and I'm so delighted yeah, that the I, God I serve is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, uh, omniscient, omnipresent, and is all-knowing, and I don't have to worry about God learning something new tomorrow. He knows it all, and I can rely upon that in my own life. And you know, at the end, and I think this is a good point to end, conclude our conversation on Dr. Scott, Mormonism, like like many of the cults, if you, if you scrutinize it close enough, you begin to realize, that there are attributes that are Christianity-like, that are Bible-ish, but in the end are in fact a cheap imitation of the real deal. Now, how can you gain a better understanding in knowing the difference? Well, uh, Dr. Scott, very gracious in offering a free e-book called What is a Cult? And all you need to do to get your own copy is to go to... Latane dot com forward slash cults, and I'll spell that for you. It's L A T A Y N E. Latane dot com forward slash cults, and you can get your own free copy of the ebook what is a Cult? Dr. Scott, we're going to have to have you back on when we've got more time to spend together, because there's so much on this subject matter that I believe is worthwhile talking about, and so many of the lessons that are certainly specific to Mormonism, but in the broader sense can be applied across the board for any of us, no matter who you might run into as you share your faith with others, uh, gaining a better understanding of, um, of who Christ is, of course, and your own relationship with God is the first key to understanding more about the cults and sharing your faith. Information, again, on the web at Latane, L-A-T-A-Y-N-E dot com. And for your free e-book called What is a Cult? Simply go to Latane forward slash cults. Dr. Latane Scott, thank you so much for spending some time with us. The book Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more right after this.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Well, you've probably heard the news. The number of Americans living below the poverty line is now at its highest level in some 50 years. That, according to a recent report released by the U.S. Census Bureau, finds that more than 46 million people in the United States um, have... uh, qualified for that un- uh, dubious position of being under the poverty level. The new figures are the third increase in three years and nearly 1% increase from 2009. The federal government also says that median incomes in the United States fell over 2% last year. The U.S. apparently has one of the highest poverty rates in the world among developed nations, I thought you know when we talk about poverty and the poverty level, uh, what exactly does that mean? How do we define all of this? And when the Census Bureau says that America has the highest poverty rates in the world among developed nations. Uh, That's got to beg a question for definition, too. Well, with some insights, we brought in an expert. Robert Rector is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He is considered one of the leading national authorities on the topic of the United States welfare system and poverty and um, has been recently dubbed the intellectual godfather of welfare reform by National Review editor Rich Lowry. And, uh, Mr. Rector, great to have you on the program tonight.
4: Well, thank you for having me on your show. Let's begin with
2: some basic definitions you know when when I hear the word poverty i I have a vision in my mind, Robert, of similar to what uh, folks went through during the great depression you know the the Dust Bowl people of Oklahoma making their way with all this stuff strapped in the side of their model a into the state of California. literally had no money, no resources, no food, no nothing. When we talk about poverty in America today. Is the picture that I just painted an accurate one?
4: No, but the picture that you have is is what the average person has in mind when they hear uh, the government say they're 46 million poor people. They think about poverty as a, a family that's homeless or living in a decrepit shack with a hole in the roof not having enough food to eat, maybe not being able to put clothes on your kids' backs. And when you look at the news media, when they run stories about poverty, they almost invariably present you with a homeless family or with a family that that has an empty refrigerator and so forth and while those families that are in that type of severe hardship do exist and we have to be very concerned about them they are a very very tiny tiny portion of this 46 million people that are are ostensibly poor in fact only 1% of the poor are homeless now what about food well the US department of agriculture runs a, sur- a survey of food consumption and hunger each year. And last year, they asked poor parents, this 46 million group, poor parents, they asked them the following question. At any time during the previous 12 months, were your children ever hungry, even for a single day, because you didn't have enough food in the home or you didn't have enough money for food? You know what? of poor parents said... My children were never hungry at all at any point over the 12-month period in the middle of a of this severe, severe recession.
2: Now, let me ask you an important question related to all of this, because I would imagine for folks that are filling out these surveys, I'd be a little bit hesitant uh, myself, quite frankly, Robert, to be uh, all that candid in some of my responses. I mean, are there cases where uh, parents are under-reporting their circumstances because they just Simply feel embarrassed by it all? I
4: I don't really think so because the survey asks a lot of other questions besides that. And the survey basically kind of tells us the same thing every year. And then there are other indicators that we'll talk about in the home. For example, um, when you look, we have surveys where you measure the actual food consumption and you compare the nutriment intake of poor children and upper middle class children. There, you can really have to struggle quite a bit to find any difference in the in the intake of vitamins and minerals and protein. They're all eating the same junk food, rich or poor. Kids still well, have uh, the sweet tooth. The same, <laughs> right, the same food. Uh, we even have surveys that go in and we take blood samples and we look for protein in the blood and and things like that and you don't find that poor people are generally particularly different than anybody else. If you look at, for example, the the consumption of percentage of calories that come from protein, from carbohydrates, from fats, poor people look exactly the same as everybody else we have another set of surveys that ask uh, these poor households what sorts of things they have in the home and what this survey shows us is that eighty percent of poor people have air conditioning two-thirds of them have cable tv seventy-five percent of them have an automobile a third of them have two or more automobiles fifty percent of them have a computer in the home Forty percent of them have internet access. A third of them have a a widescreen plasma TV, and a quarter of them have a TiVo system. Okay, now that's the sorts of things you're just not going to make up, and and it's very consistent because as we look, even though the government kind of suggests that poor people aren't getting any better year by year, as we do that survey. The, the, the amount of things that the poor people have in their home goes up largely as the cost of those commodities go down.
2: I, I guess a lot of this then ultimately is very relative to what our point of reference is and I want to talk about that when we come back. Cause, you know, as I mentioned earlier look if you're Warren Buffett and your net worth suddenly plummets from you know the billions of dollars that you're kicking around with every day to just $10 million in the bank account, to you that's probably poverty. Uh, to me that's retirement. So is it relative And to what degree, then, do we adequately define what poverty means? And can it really be true that the poverty situation is worse in the United States than any other so-called developed nation? Really? Or are we just living under a big illusion here? Delusion might be the better word. Robert Rector, Senior Research Fellow with the Heritage Foundation, a timeout. Back with more as Lifeline continues. All right, welcome back to The Conversation. Robert Rectors with a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Now, Robert, as we define poverty, how much of this is all relative? I asked that question. We had a listener call in a moment ago, didn't want to be on the air, but said, you know, I consider myself at the poverty level, and I don't have all those things. I don't have a widescreen TV set. I don't have broadband Internet access at home. How can we say that people who are defined as under the poverty level in America have all those things. I don't.
4: Well, the fact is, when you ask the public, Rasmussen just did a poll a few weeks ago, and he asked a very simple question. He said, look, if a person has adequate food for their family and has a reasonable place, apartment or home to live in that's in reasonable condition, would you consider that person to be poor? And by a ratio of about six to one, people said, no, that individual isn't poor. And, And the reality is, by that standard having a, a decent place to live in having a sufficient nutritious food for your family about 4 out of f- 5 poor people are simply not poor in any sense and then they have then you got to throw the the plasma TV and the computers and all of that on top of that um the reality is that most people in the United States when they hear the word poverty are not thinking about relative poverty they're thinking about The images that they see on TV, which are conventionally uh, homeless families, people living in an overcrowded trailer with the roof leaking, they're always images of rather significant deprivation. And uh, trust me, now I realize that there are families like that in the United States, um, but the average poor family and the bulk of people that are, are identified as poor don't live anything like that. And might might reasonably say, well, how come census is saying that we have 46 million poor people? And the answer is in the way that they count poverty. Uh, Census says that a family is poor if it has a cash income over the course of one year uh, below $22,000 a year. However, and here's the catch, when they count income, The entire safety net is excluded. All welfare in the United States is excluded. Food stamps, earned income tax credit, Medicaid, public housing, none of those things are counted. What does that mean? Well, last year the taxpayers spent nine hundred billion dollars close to a trillion dollars on cash food housing medical care for anti-poverty programs for poor and low-income americans when you divide that out that comes to around nine thousand dollars for each low-income american none of which is counted by census when they calculate this poverty level the missing money talking about international comparisons the missing money alone is greater than the gross national product of virtually every nation in the globe so
2: again it really comes down to an issue of of at what level do we consider or define poverty and 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 what yardstick we're using against it
4: indeed and basically as i said you know Look, the typical poor family has air conditioning, cable TV, has a computer in the house. If they've got kids, they've got an Xbox, they have a car. Here's a nice international comparison for you. The average poor American now, half of poor Americans live in standalone single family homes. 40% of them are in apartments. Only 10% of them are in, in mobile trailers. But the average dwelling of a poor American is about 40 to 50 percent larger than the average house or apartment in england not of poor english people but of every english person it's about 50 percent larger than the average dwelling in france in germany in sweden in italy okay of course more more
2: space doesn't necessarily mean more opulence though
4: It doesn't, but it's a good, uh, and that wouldn't be true in every indicator by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a very good indication that that, uh, the poor in the United States are very well housed, I mean, extremely well housed by international standards. Most of these houses and apartments in the U.S. are in good condition. Not all of them, but most of them are. When you have these comparisons about, oh, well, the United States has more poverty than other nations, this, again, is relative. This income standard that is used to judge poverty in the United States is higher than all the other nations, okay? So this is like having a hurdle race out in a track and field meet where the other nations are jumping... Three-foot hurdles, and the United States is jumping four-foot hurdles. And at the end of the race, the United States comes in a little bit behind, and people say, "Aha! See, the United States is a poorer hurdler, right?" No, <laughs> the judge, the 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 test that you put the United States up against was was higher than the tests that other nations have. Plus. That's compounded by the fact that in the United States and the United States alone, we, don't, we have all of this money in our system to assist poor people, but we don't count that in our statistics for either poverty or for inequality.
2: Robert Rector, Senior Research Fellow with the Heritage Foundation. Robert, appreciate you taking some time to kind of bust out the numbers for us and give us a bit more uh, deeper understanding as to exactly how we define polks in America based on uh, the poverty line on Lifeline from KFAX.